when there is daily need, there is daily grace. When there is urgent need, there is urgent grace. When there's overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. He gives us more grace, and it comes from Him. He gives us more grace because He's deeply in love with us, refuses to abandon us, and hear this, you've heard, heard me say it multiple times before, He refuses to abandon us to the emotion of the moment. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. The Scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 16. So if you have your Bible with you, would you turn please to Genesis chapter 16, and you'll find it on page 21 of the church Bible. Page 21 Genesis 16, we're reading together the first five verses. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said, and so after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abraham, "'You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering.' I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His holy word. Two Sundays ago, we started a new series of studies called Radical Discipleship. And on our first Sunday together, we looked at Mary and Martha. And the climax of our study back then was this, that we focused on the importance in our relationship with Christ of being rather than doing. And so, that was our first lesson in Radical Discipleship. It is more important to be than to do. And then last Sunday morning, we looked at Nathaniel, and the climax of our study last Sunday morning, and the one lesson I wanted you to take away was this. It was not so much that what God saw in Nathaniel that enabled God to call Nathaniel, although He did call him, it was what Nathaniel saw in Christ that utterly transformed Nathaniel. And once Nathaniel realized who Jesus was, the Christ, the Son of God, at that point, his life was utterly transformed. And today we're turning to Genesis chapter 6, and this is the first time we have gone to the Old Testament in this series on radical discipleship, and we're looking at Sarah and Abraham. Now, the passage tells us that their name hasn't been changed yet, so they're known as Sarai and Abraham. 
but in the subsequent chapters, 17, 18, 19, and so on, their names are changed. So, rather than jump back and forward with names, allow me, please, to talk of Abraham and Sarah. I think it will be easier for me and certainly easier for you rather than confuse you. Chapter 12 is the breakthrough in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And in chapter 12, God speaks to them in a spectacular fashion. And for the first time in their adult life, they realize and fully appreciate who God truly is. And He enters into a covenant relationship with them, and He gives them an eternal promise. And He says to them, I will be your God. And from this point on, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, I will be there for you. And I will never leave you, and I will never abandon you, and I will never walk away from you. And what's more, within the eternal purposes that I have for you, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. And chapters 12 and 13 and 14, there are moments when it is absolutely clear that Abraham and Sarah, their hearts and minds are soaring in ecstasy as they engage with the living God. And for all intents and purposes, it is an unfolding narrative of unquestioning obedience, uninhibited faith. Wonderful chapters. There are times when Abraham and Sarah get it wrong, and we see it again here in chapter 16. And in fact, if chapter 15 is one of the high watermarks in the life of Abraham and Sarah, chapter 16, sadly, is an episode that is distasteful uh, and not one that we want to return to that often. But before we get into the passage, there is a question and I want you to have this uppermost in your mind as we move forward today. And the question is this, how far are Abraham and Sarah willing, or let me put it this way, how far are Sarah and Abraham prepared to trust God at their point of greatest need? How far are they prepared to trust Him at their point of greatest need. And that's where we're going this morning, and that question will dominate our study here in Genesis chapter 16. Abraham and Sarah were told that their descendants, as many as the stars in the skies, but that was 10 years ago. And Sarah is desperate for children. She cannot wait to have wee ones running around the home. She is longing to really lavish her love upon them, and she is frustrated beyond measure. And in her mind, things begin to change, and they change for the worse. And Sarah, in her mind, at least I like to imagine in my own imagination, had gone to Abraham and said, now, Abraham, do you remember all those years ago when God promised that your descendants would be as multiple as the stars in the skies? Do you remember that? And Abraham, think back. And did God really say 
that I would be the mother of those children? Or did he simply say, the children will be numerous? Abraham, it's been 10 years. It's time to start a family. Abraham, does God not bless and encourage and strengthen those who show a little initiative? Does he not comfort those in need and help move them forward? Abraham, it's time for you to show a little leadership here. It's time for you to be proactive, take the initiative. And after all, we have a servant girl called Hagar, and Abraham, you know that in our own culture and upbringing and tradition, that if there's a servant girl in the home, that if the husband and wife agree, that servant girl, if she provides a child, becomes our child. And Abraham, you know this, and it really is time for you to start moving ahead with this. God has called you, and now He has provided Hagar. Surely this is His will and provision for us. And notice how far Sarah has come in her thinking. When way back then, God promised, I will provide you with children. And now, Sarah cannot wait anymore. And she's plotting and scheming and being intentional and purposeful, and she's coercing and substituting her own personal preference for the purpose and will of God. And Sarah has discovered, although I don't think she would readily admit it, but we can certainly see it, that her emotions are controlling Sarah rather than Sarah controlling her emotions. Let me say it again. Her emotions are controlling Sarah rather than Sarah controlling her emotions. And please allow me to give you a very, very serious warning. When you begin to take the purposes and plans of God and then shape them and manipulate them and coerce them and substitute them for your own personal preference, pretending it's the providence of God, you have stepped way over the line, way over the line. And that's exactly what Sarah has done. Now, of course, we have a little sympathy with Sarah. She's grieving. She's longing for a child. She can't wait to hear God's answer and wait for His timing, although she should. And we have some sympathy with her, but she's come a long, long way and is clearly stepping outside of the purposes of God. Let's move forward again. When Abraham and Sarah have the discussion, you notice in verse 2, and the Hebrew is clear on this, it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. How much better would it have been if Genesis recorded, and Abraham listened to the voice of God? But he doesn't. He doesn't. He surrenders to the preferences and desires of Sarah. And of course, he then has an affair with Hagar, and Hagar is now expecting a child. And the very thing that Sarah first wanted has now come to pass. She longed for, 
She manipulated, she coerced, she schemed, and she planned that Hagar would become a mother. And when Hagar becomes pregnant and is expecting the child, what does Hagar do? She turns to Sarah and smiles and says to Sarah, I have achieved what you, my former mistress, could not achieve. Thank you very much. And Sarah, you used to think you were his favorite, but watch this. Once this baby arrives, I will become his favorite. And it will no longer be Sarah and Abraham. It will be Abraham and Hagar. And you can see all of that unfolding. And Sarah responds in a volcanic fashion. It's as if the whole ground exploded beneath her. And she becomes outraged and acrimony and anger and bitterness is in the entire conversation. And she despises Hagar, treats her so badly that she runs away. And incidentally, in the latter part of the chapter, let me encourage you to read it this week, that she runs away and she runs right into God Himself. And it's a remarkable story of redemption. But meanwhile, Abraham and Sarah are struggling with the chaos that has come out of, Ab of Sarah's manipulating and coercing. What is Abraham's role in all of this? Amidst all of the anger, the blame, the recrimination, what should Abraham have done? How should he have responded when Sarah first mentioned this? Abraham should have stepped towards Sarah, put his arms around her, and said, Sarah, I love you. You're my wife. I will never leave you. I will never give you up. No one else can give me what you can give me, and God Himself has called us together. Sarah, think for a moment. Think just for a moment. Has He not been good to us down through the years? Has He not been as good as His Word? Do you remember the days when He presented Himself in our homes, when He answered prayer, when He was leading and guiding and directing all the way from out of the Chaldees? Do you remember the times when He has given us livestock and land and riches? Sarah, everything we have, we have because of His goodness and grace. And Sarah, we cannot give up on Him now. Sarah, I know it hurts. Sarah, I understand the anxiety and the fear and the hurt, but He will not give up on us. And then He should have asked a simple question. And if you're taking notes this morning, please write this down. Here it comes. This is the question that every Christian will face when a challenge comes our way. Is God sufficient for the challenges which lie before us? Is God truly sufficient for the challenges that lie before us? And if He is, 
Stop scheming. Stop plotting. Stop coercing. Stop feeling you've got to sort out everything and everyone and hand it over to Him. He can be trusted. Now, having said all of that, where do we go next? As the passage unfolds, notice Abraham's response when Sarah blames him at verse 6. In fact, verse 5, then Sarah said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me, and may the Lord judge between you and me. Sarah has gone so far, she's about to jump off the deep end, asking now for the Lord to judge. She has gone so far. And what does Abraham say? He almost dismisses her. Your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled. Abraham does not come out of this narrative well. In fact, if anything, he displays and portrays apathy, indifference, passivity, compliance, and then eventually culpability. Abraham, what has happened? What has happened when those great moments of engagement with God, the ecstasy of the heart and soul and mind, Abraham, what has happened to you? The radical disciple utterly refuses to take his eye off of God himself. And Sarah and Abraham were so busy looking at the circumstances around them, and Sarah particularly, how she could coerce and manipulate them into her personal preference. And please also notice this, and here is the other question. Why did God not provide Sarah with a child up to this point? What was He doing? Was he deaf? Did he not hear her prayers? Did he not care? Did he not want to see Abraham and Sarah happy and content with the birth of a child? Well, let me suggest this, that God in His eternal purposes was eager to give Sarah the very thing she wanted most. He wanted her to know the joy and thrill and completion of motherhood. He wanted her to be part of His purposes and promises, and He absolutely did not want Sarah, excuse me, Hagar, to become Abraham's, and please forgive me for this, he absolutely did not want Hagar to participate in an affair with Abraham. Absolutely not. And he wanted Sarah to have it, but in his perfect timing. And he's saying, Sarah, please understand this. When you are living off your emotions, 
when you are seeking to manipulate everyone around you, when you are seeking to invoke my name and put it as a seal on your plans, you will always, always, always be disappointed because God wanted much more for Sarah than she could imagine. And Sarah would not wait. She would not trust. Remember the question at the beginning of our time together? When it came to Abraham and Sarah, what was the question? Let me repeat it. How far are Sarah and Abraham prepared to trust God at the point of their greatest need? Hold that thought for a second, and we'll come to our conclusion this morning. And I want to move from the Old Testament this morning to the New Testament. And there's a couple of reasons, but it will become clear, I trust, in a minute. St. Augustine, who was one of the, not the very early church fathers, but certainly one of the Latin fathers way back in the third century, or fourth century more accurately. St. Augustine was arguably the greatest theological mind since the Apostle Paul, and continues to be so today. He really is outstanding. And when he was asked about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, on one occasion he said this, the old is the new concealed. The new is the old revealed. The old is the new concealed. The new is the old revealed. And this morning, as we come to the New Testament to shine light on all that we have learned this morning, I'm coming to James chapter 4, verse 6, and you don't need to look it up. I'll give it to you. It's a very short verse. And in the epistle of James, James, after discussing all sorts of very practical issues, has these words to say, and this is what he says in chapter 4, verse 6. And talking of God and the challenges that we face, he says this, but He gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. And James knew back then what we have learned down through the centuries as the millennia go by. When there is daily need, there is daily grace. When there is urgent need, there is urgent grace. When there's overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. He gives us more grace, and it comes from Him. He gives us more grace because He's deeply in love with us, refuses to abandon us, and hear this. You've heard me say it multiple times before. He refuses to abandon us to the emotion of the moment. He gives us more grace, and He gives. He gives. He doesn't give grudgingly. He doesn't shake His head and say, oh, they're back again. Monday morning, it's always the same. How many times have I to tell them? How long have I got to teach them? Will they never learn? No. He gives. Daily need, daily grace. Urgent need, urgent grace. Overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. He gives us more 
grace, not grudgingly, not if he must, but he gives us more grace. So, what do we say in conclusion this morning? We say this. The radical disciple utterly refuses to try to manipulate, constrain, coerce the purposes of God. We simply will not go there. Even in the heat of battle, even in the midst of the emotional challenge, we will not go there. In subsequent chapters, Abraham and Sarah return to wonderful intimacy with God because He will not give up on them, and He gives them more grace. So, as we leave this morning and you prepare to move into another week, remember the question and I'm looking for an answer now. Your answer is yes, and here it comes. Is He sufficient for our needs? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this marvelous passage of Scripture. Thank You that our trust and faith is in You, the living God, because we know what it means to receive more grace from You. Father, for those of us facing significant challenges this week, the loss of someone we've loved, concern over health issues, praying for a child or a grandchild, others far from you, help us this week to remember your promise. He gives us more grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, my name is Richard Gibbons. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian. If you are wondering what First Presbyterian Church is like, one of the things you will discover is that each time you come, you will receive a very warm welcome. I have the pleasure of assisting with a number of ministries here at this church. I teach five new member classes a year. also help to lead mission trips to the Dominican Republic, and uh, we at this church do a number of things that impact our community. It's a wonderful place to serve. It's a wonderful place to belong. My main responsibilities include family ministries, which is marriage, men's ministry, and young adults. I also have the joy of serving the night worship service. My passion here at the church is to point others to the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. My particular job is in education. Uh, whether it's adult education or youth or children, I have something to do with it uh, and would love to talk with you at any time about the things that you can learn from the Bible in our education courses here at First Presbyterian Church. Congregational care covers a lot of ground in a, a church like ours. Essentially, we believe that uh, the mission of the church is to care for one another uh, as well as to outreach in the community. So our desire is to provide for the spiritual, emotional, and physical care of the members of our congregation and extend that also to the needs of our community. 
I'm Tina Jones. I'm the director of the children's ministry here at First Presbyterian. Scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We have a very vibrant children's ministry. When you come on a Sunday morning, your children have not just childcare, we also offer ministry. One of the amazing things about First Presbyterian is our location. We're situated at the heart of Greenville, a growing and vibrant city. Everything from children's ministry and youth ministry to a prayer ministry and being very active in the community gives us an opportunity to spread and share the love of Christ. If you're looking for a Sunday morning experience that is engaging, vibrant and life transforming, please come and join us.